0: Welcome to the Pacific Forest Foundation's Talking Timber, where each week you meet the professionals behind the Northwest timber industry.
1: Hi, and welcome. I'm Diane Mettler, Executive Director of the Pacific Logging Congress, and in this episode of Talking Timber, we will be speaking to Russ Vaughan, founder and CEO of Vaughan Timbers. This is the second of a two-episode talk with Russ about mass timber and how telling a great story about the industry can have a powerful impact. In the meantime, I want to thank our sponsors, the Pacific Logging Congress and the Pacific Forest Foundation. Both are dedicated to providing sound technical education about the forest industry. This year, the Pacific Forest Foundation will be giving out thousands of dollars in scholarships. You can check out their work at www.pacificloggingcongress.org and www.pacificforestfoundation.org. Also, we want to thank our new sponsors, Timber West Magazine and Logging and Sawmilling Journal. You can subscribe now for free to both of them by just going to their website, www.borusnet.com. Okay, let's pick up now again with Russ.
0: Um, but now, you know, Legos have have evolved, and they've, they have uh, they have they've been able to realize that if they do the engineering up front they can now create a kit that somebody can assemble based on those directions. And the simpler they make it, the easier and the better and more uh, successful they are as a business. And they've revolutionized their business doing it. And so we're trying to do the same thing. We're trying to take a, um, what was traditionally a bunch of materials and construction and take and create a kit of parts that can be assembled. And they can be assembled easily with the same skill set that's out there today. So the people that are out there um, building, you know, structures right now, we're actually doing things that that simplify their lives. Wow, that's great. So now instead of needing a crew of fifteen to twenty framers, when you might have a core of like six to eight that show up every day that you can count on, well, now that crew is perfectly sized to erect a mass timber structure you know and and um i think that's where this is this is going and so it's not going to be that there necessarily is less people overall in the the space it's just going to be that there's going to be more contractors with smaller crews doing more projects and the other thing that's really nice about cross-laminated timber we Put the trucks together in such a way that when they show up, if there's a crane on the job site, which most of the time there are, they pick them in order and they just slide them right into place, and that's done well ahead of time. So not only do we do that, but we're also we're able to work with these crews, and they don't need the same amount of craftsmanship that they needed before from all the folks that are out there. So when it shows up on the job site, it goes together quickly. But it's also a lot lighter. So in the case of a mid-rise that would go into, let's say, South Lake Union in Seattle, it's about one-fifth the weight per square foot. What that means is you're going to have one-fifth the deliveries. So if you think about that in terms of disruption to communities, that's a big deal. And I did learn that from Andrew Waugh in London, that architect I mentioned earlier, where they had a building, it's, which is now the biggest mass timber building in the world. It's a 10-story. It's about 170,000-square-foot footprint building. It's huge. Yeah. It's all built with mass timber. And it's, it was about uh, just under 2,000 tons of material to go into that structure versus 10,000 tons if it were steel and concrete. Well, you do that in terms of delivery loads. You're talking just... Just under 80 delivery loads of wood versus 400 for steel and concrete. And it was done eight eight months faster. So that community is going to want to see development in the one that takes less time and is less impactful to traffic.
1: So that's got to be making a big difference.
0: That There's going to be a real good place for us in, um, in the single family residence world as well. This stuff is beautiful. It's, um, you know, we can structurally build out a home. I've seen it done in, in Europe in like three days. Wow. Like you can actually come on the job site, click these together just like a Lego set. And you have the house that you designed in 3d the way you wanted it. It's structurally sound. Now you have to do a lot of the finish work still like you would in any home, but you don't have to, I mean, it's dried in. You can put, The the roofing on and all that stuff can be done in a uh, in a controlled environment and you can take your time to get the house done the way you want to.
1: We built our house and it did not get framed in three days. (laughs) It was more like three months.
0: (laughs) And I know and it's something I think when people change their paradigm about what's possible, I think that they're going to really like it. And the the other challenge that I think. um, is out there and it's a misconception is that this is expensive. The reason they say it's expensive is because we think about framing a wall, right? And we go, okay, we have 16 inches on center with wood. And we frame that wall up and it costs seven dollars a square foot in material and seven dollars a square foot to install. And CLT is $10 a square foot, just for the material. You go, okay, well, that doesn't work. But the install is like $2. So when you add it up, it's less. But that's not really the the cost comparison that's fair. If you look at it from, and I think that we will start doing this, when we look at the finished cost and time to deliver and quality, you're going to see that mass timber is going to slide in at the top of all those. Whereas when you look at at just materials, because that's our our mindset, that's our paradigm is materials. We want to get the, the, the best materials we can for the least amount of dollars. And that's not the wrong mindset, but when it comes to this stuff, we're talking about a complete set. So why are you concerned about your materials and not the cost and quality of your house? Because we see a lot of people doing that where they're, they're used to that, that paradigm instead of just buying the whole house. They have those videos out there that uh, show like extreme motor coaches.
1: Oh, yeah. You yeah.
0: know, or, where people will go in there and they'll sit down with the team and they'll go look at different fits and finishes. And they'll spend way more than a lot of us do on a home. <laughs> yeah. And they have their custom layout with all the materials. I think that's where we're headed to build our homes. I think what we'll do is we'll sit down, we'll probably use um, virtual reality and and be able to walk through the design and make some changes, and then have all this stuff done ahead of time. So instead of looking out and going, oh, the window would be better suited there or here, we could do that with the 3D rendering and do all that ahead of time. And then produce all those pieces so they fit together and stack that together rather than, and then we've got a finished product that we've already decided on rather than going through this process of, okay, okay now get ready. We're going to have to do uh, next Thursday, we're going to have to decide on floor coverings and, and we're going to have to decide on paint colors and you know, what type of fixtures do you want and you know all those different things that just prolong the agony of building a home <laughs> Um, I think we can do those in a, in a totally different setting. And you see it some with high-end apartments now in some of the cities where you can go into one of the uh, spec units that they create and then they can kind of show you the different aspects of what you can um, change if you pre-order. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of homes are going to be done that way. i say it'd so. probably
1: save a few marriages too, not to have to go through each uh, element. Like well, that.
0: I think that there's absolutely, I, I think that you know the other thing is not a lot of people are sitting around with the the cash or the credit to be able to buy or build a house while they're still in the one that they have, and so I look at it like you might be able to um, go do some of the work to prepare your home. So let's say you bought a piece of land, you're going to build a house. you go out there and you do all the appropriate plumbing, electrical connections all that stuff you do your um your foundation you're ready to go that foundation is designed with your CLT structure right so now what you do is you put your house on the market to coincide with when the CLT gets produced and you just have that lead time there so it, so it works with the producer or they could build it ahead of time and store it for you and Once you go under contract, you can start to build it and you can be ready to move in by the time your your house closes, you know, because a lot of times it's 30 to 60 days to close your house, but then a lot of people end up, you know, renting another house, moving in or living in their trailer or RV or camp trailer, whatever it is, and trying to finish this house and then you're making poor decisions because you're like... We need to get in there like yesterday. So I don't care. Just get it done. <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of people have experienced that. And, you know, if you could have your house dried in in three days and you could have it delivered to the spec that you want it. And, and then you could take your time to finish it out if necessary. Um, I just think that there's a better way than the way the way we've been doing it. And this product uh, allows for that.
1: Are you seeing so... I can't imagine the news doesn't spread when they put in some structure in 55 minutes that, hey, folks, did you just see what we did? I mean, it seems like when the builders have a good experience, it'll spread the word too.
0: Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely true. Um, you know, we're new. So we've been, we haven't had a whole lot of comprehensive projects yet. This this one locally is um, the first of its type. We've got two others on under contract. And yeah, we're really focused on creating videos and social media posts and trying to generate interest from others um, to get some news out there, to get people more and more understanding, get it more and more mainstream. Um, we completed a, a modular housing project in, uh, in Spokane. It started the 1st of October and it was done in April. Um, it was uh, 14 units with eight separate structures. Oh. And it's a new play on the way that we do multifamily. So it's in this kind of eclectic, growing neighborhood in Spokane where it was two old uh, single family houses. And so it's two larger lots and now it will have these 14 units on it, but they're eight different units, so detached. So instead of an apartment complex where you're stacked in with one another, um, this is somewhat detached. The ones that are the same structure have a divider wall, so it would be like one on one side, one on the other, so more like a duplex.
1: Wow, interesting.
0: Um, So it's kind of a cool way to utilize this material, fast construction, uh, fast deployment, Um, we're looking at ways to do something similar to that with additional dwelling units. So ADUs is what they call them, where you build essentially a tiny house or something like that. And in places like Seattle and Portland, they've created new rules that allow you to do a boundary line if you have an alleyway and put another house to densify the, um, the population where they're trying to do that. So... We've done that and that project has gotten a lot of attention locally and regionally. And I think even, um, fast money magazine or one of the magazines, uh, big financial magazines, uh, had identified it as one of the, um, great ideas of 2019 or 20. I can't remember which. So it's, it's getting some attention and I think that's, it's great because people, I they, they crave for seeing new, improved things. And, um, and I'm not sure how we did it, but we were, um, Seattle Business Magazine recognized us as uh, Building Trades Manufacturer of the Year. Wow, congratulations. Year. So that was, yeah, thank you. Um, like I said, I, I didn't know we were in the running court, so whoever nominated us, thank you. That's, that's a, quite an honor, we appreciate it. But I think it's, I think there's a thirst for it right? And I think that it's something that I see a lot of growth, uh, not only growth potential, but um, I think it's just taking us in a better direction. And I think it's just going to lead us to um, to better utilization of our forests and our forest products and I think tie our urban and rural communities together, um, especially where we live, where it's and we've got a lot of wildfire issues here.
1: Oh, so, so can you explain that a little?
0: Most of what we're doing on our federal lands with our collaboration with environmental community groups is to um, thin the forest, right? So we're leaving the biggest and best trees, and we're taking out these thousands of trees that are out there that have just been choking our forest to death, and they've created wildfire dangers. And we're actually creating what was the natural spacing in the forest. So the wood's actually a byproduct of forest restoration activity. People, once they realize that's actually a thing and it's true, they love the story, right? Now, not all logging is done that way, but that is a real um, good way for us to tell that story and explain, hey, we're actually saving the forest by managing it because the forest is still doing photosynthesis and still taking in carbon dioxide and cranking out oxygen instead of becoming a carbon source with a massive wildfire that's actually much hotter than was ever natural before. Yeah, so we're taking the byproducts and, and we're going to be able to share with people that their structure actually helped restore forests. So, in many cases, what we're doing is saving the forests because. Otherwise it it would have burned. And if we're now able to get it into a position of forest health, rather than being one that's um, challenged that may in fact burn or may die of bug and insect infestation. Um, And in many cases, there's some studies out there that show that overstocked forests are leading to drought conditions, not the other way around because each tree is sucking up more moisture and you're not getting the natural flow of water. Um, so, there's all kinds of things that tell really great stories. But if we do a good job of marketing the structures, when you're in markets like Seattle or Portland, you said, you know, this restored 160 acres of forests that were in danger of being burning wildfires. Oh, yeah. um, I think people are going to just go, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a different story than, you know, a lot of people think, you know, we just clear cut the redwood forest because that, you know, they, they have no context.
1: Wow. That story is really powerful. Hi, we're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors, the Pacific Forest Foundation, the Pacific Logging Congress, as well as Timberwest Magazine and Logging and Sawmilling Journal. Due to the coronavirus, the 2020 PLC Congress has been moved to 2021, but that doesn't mean they won't be active and involved this year, promoting sound technical forest education. To find out more about what they're doing, just visit www.pacificloggingcongress.com. Okay, back to Russ.
0: So we can tell that story, and then I think it leads into um, talking more about commercial logging and the way that that's done, and the way that we regenerate forests and you know, I see posts all the time where somebody posts something on Mass Timber, and they say, "Oh, we're just going to have to replant so many trees now." It's like, uh, I it's, it's already happening. You know, it's not <laughs> like this is news. Um, but I think that um, I think that what I see in Europe, we can learn a lot from, especially on the West Coast, and that is mimicking the the um, the natural openings and trying to create things that are visually more in line with what happened naturally. I think everybody that sees a big rectangle on the landscape that was a forest, that unless they're really understanding it, it's so stark. And it's such a change that just telling them that, hey, we're growing trees faster and better than ever before. Well, I had a, a conversation with a company that was doing that in our area here, and I just said, to be quite honest with him, I said, you know, it's gonna have to the return's gonna be have to, to be worth the tongue lashing you get from the community. And he was like, excuse me, and he didn't get it. I said, well, let me explain it to you this way. Let's say you had somebody that had a real successful career at Bowen, and they loved Colville, and they wanted to build their dream home, and they found 160 acres. And, you know, it's affordable here compared to Seattle. So they sell their house. They come here. They build their dream home. They're looking at this, this mountainside, and it's beautiful. And let's say the guy is 62 years old, his wife, and he's having grandkids come and visit. And now you've created a rectangle. You've applied herbicide try to get the trees to start faster. It's really going to be hard to compel that guy and that family That what you did was ultimately what's best for them.
1: So um, what would be an alternative?
0: I I, I talk to people a lot about how how we manage the forests can be done in a a different way. And if you go to Europe, because they have, in the Alps, for instance, they have ski resorts everywhere, right? Far more and far different than we have here. So you have people out there that are poking around in the woods all the time. So they see all this stuff. But unless you know what forest management looks like, you can't always see it because what they're doing is they're creating what would look like mountain meadows. They're creating these small, irregularly shaped clear cuts. Um, they're doing a mix of clear cut and thinning. Um, and I know that that's not always possible. In, you know some of our West Coast forests, you have you know, hemlock with shallow root systems. You thin that out, it's all going to blow over. I get it. And I think that, There's nothing wrong with the way that we manage our forests from a sustainability and silvicultural standpoint. But I think that if we are going to really get the kind of community support that we want, we're going to have to swallow our pride in some instances and think about, okay, what's the aesthetics here? What's the takeaway? Because it is branding. It is telling a story.
1: Interesting. I've never really thought of it as branding.
0: I tell people all the time, I said, okay, would you rather be 100% right and get zero? Or would you rather compromise and maybe get 80%? You know, and I think that that's a question we need to ask ourselves sometimes. And uh, On the Colville National Forest, with our collaboration, the Colville National Forest is the most productive forest in the country. That's, that's a great story, and it's incredibly sad. Yeah, Colville National Forest grows trees slowly, we have um, our trees are short, um, we're only 1.4 million acres out of the 193 million acres across the, the country. Like, you know, there are our west coast forests, even our, the, the, the small acreages of national forests grow more than the Calvo could ever hope to grow on a quarter of the acreage, right? But the reason that the Colville is the most productive forest in the country is because we've done things differently. We've invited environmentalists in. We've invited the community in. And we've said, "How, if we're going to do this, and we've all recognized that we've got a forest health issue here, how could it be done? And it's taken 15 years. Mm -hmm. We've been doing it for a long, long time, meeting once a month. Our Northeast Washington Forest Coalition has sat down with you know, all the way from the Nature Conservancy down to local environmental groups, and we've created trust with one another, um, you know, and sometimes it's the Forest Service that is stuck in their ways and think, oh, we can't do it, this, there's no way to do it, but when you have the forest industry and you have the environmentalists saying, this is the way it needs to be done, what's stopping us? And so we just kept pushing and pushing and pushing, and now We've got another project, a, a collaborative project. It's uh, over 70,000 acres. It's actually brought on by the community, not by the forest industry wow. this time. Um, and it's going to result in hundreds of millions of board feet. Um, and it's going to result in a better, healthier forest. And everybody's going to win.
1: So what about the West Coast?
0: I talked to people about, well, you know, on the West Coast, we don't have those issues there. You know, there's got to be an angle, right? And one of the angles that I think about, um, in particular, uh, on the west, west side forests or um, national forests specifically, are what about an old, uh, a big tree retention program? So a lot of those areas are, were replanted, and they're uniform in age. And they're all you know, marketable. Um, but what if instead of trying to say we're going to manage that to be harvested and replanted, what if we said in areas that you know could withstand it, what if we went out there and we, we thinned those out we identified the biggest invest trees to leave for aesthetic purposes to get back to wide spacing and big trees, and then what if we could but what if what if we could then continually manage those for us because those little trees are going to grow back up in there and we manage around those big trees and we just do that in perpetuity. There's going to be hundreds of millions of board feet that could come from efforts like that. Um, so anyway, I just think that there are, um, you know, we started this by talking about challenges and opportunities and excitement. And I think that there are, um, these challenges are all opportunities and, um, we're going to need, more forest products, not less. And I think we need creative ways to go unlock that because one of the things we know is we've got more trees than we've ever had. Um, We've got a forest that really needs treatment, Um, especially in the Intermountain West. Um, We've got states that almost have no sawmill infrastructure at all, no logging infrastructure at all, yet they have vast forests that are dying of insect and disease. They're burning up. And people are asking for answers. And I think that um, mass timber could help us you know, create some of those answers, while at the same time, um, building markets and building values for those that are managing forests that continually have been managed.
1: If you, if you needed more mass timber um, mills, are they faster maybe to build than, say, your traditional mills? I mean, you guys were up and running pretty quickly.
0: Yeah, I think that it can be done pretty rapidly. I think that, um, you know, the small diameter technology that's in sawmilling now, um, it really compartmentalizes the process to take logs and turn them into lumber. So I think we can build smaller, more right-sized sawmills to the landscape, you know, you know, how much volume can this forest support? Okay. How do we build a mill that does that? And instead of just making two by fours that we just flood into the marketplace and throw our, our, uh, market into turmoil, because now we have more product and the same amount of demand. Uh, what if we use that to fuel the demand of mass timber and incrementally increase the demand with the production of lumber and, uh, at the same time, fueled this mass timber boom. I think that that's the the most productive way to do it, um, and I think that I think that's the way it's heading. Um, but there's still a lot of places that have sawmills that um, I think could alter the way they produce their lumber to really fit mass timber and get more value. And then as we see more demand, which I think we will. I mean, if Europe's got sixty of these facilities. And you look at the growth in North America, we should probably have over 100, you know, in the next two decades. So, that's a big deal. I mean, if we were talking about 100 sawmills, I mean, we we're going to have uh we right now we have 35 employees, we're, we're we're growing. Um, you know, we hope that trajectory is consistent and we don't have any blips in, in the the road, but um, you know, we're looking to put in another line here that's gonna be another you know, 25 to 30 people. So you're talking about you know, skilled labor force from 60 to 100 um, as part of a facility. That's very similar to a sawmill. So you know, if you had a, a two shift, uh, single pass, small diameter log mill, um, and then you had one of these facilities, you, know, you might be talking about 200 employees total. Okay. Um, and that could easily be integrated. What I've seen in Europe is instead of just going with a regular um, planer mill and creating construction materials, you go through that process right into a value add. And then you have, your, you have some of the um, ways to utilize the lower grade material. Um, and I think that's kind of the future. Instead of what we do now is we typically have, Um, a sawmill and then there's a that's stopped and then then we sell product out in the marketplace on these grades instead of having this integrated facility that's kind of tied to a certain market um, I think that it, it just it gives us a better trajectory potential for growth instead of just saying hey we need to put on more sawmills and you, know, you put more sawmills out there, the, the log price is gonna go down or go up and the lumber price is gonna go down, which means people go out of business. We've seen that happen over and over again. What we need is a rising tide and I think mass timber gives us that because we're utilizing more wood per square foot in a home um, and in a building. And so in many cases we're competing in places with like steel and concrete. We're steel and concrete quite honestly isn't a very cost-effective measure, but it, it, it works. And so um, steel and concrete are wonderful materials. We just need to find the right fit for all these materials. And I, I think that wood starts to really work in those mid-rise buildings, you know, the, the five to 12-story range. Okay. And right now with the codes, um, we're, we're capable of and legally able to build uh, wood structures up to 18 stories now. Not a lot of people know that. And so um, communities like uh, Seattle, Portland and Denver have already adopted those uh, new building codes. And so um, where we were limited to six stories and 85 feet prior to that, now we can go up to uh, 18 stories. And so that's really exciting for wood and, and the utilization of our products.
1: Yeah. It's all exciting. It's all good. You should just keep talking to everybody and tell the story and get everybody
0: out Yeah, we're <laughs> Yeah, we're we're doing our best.
1: <laughs> so is the, is the is the mill between the Boggin brothers mill and you guys is that working? Is that kind of a oh, a template you can show folks to that 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 blend of
0: Yeah, I think that I think that the um having the raw material uh, close to the, the, uh, the manufacturing plant is critical because you do need to have some connectivity. Like we communicate regularly with the mill um, on the product mix and the drawing and those kinds of things. So even if you weren't as fortunate as I am to have a close connection with the family member that runs a sawmill, there are lots of wonderful uh, sawmill operators out there that would love to have a customer nearby like, you know, Idaho Forest Group has tremendous amount of um, high quality building materials. That'd be an ideal situation for us to align with them. Uh, the, the good news about that is that we're taking product, adding value to it that would otherwise probably go out in a commodity. And, and, and so the, the value um, just gets elevated along the way because we're taking a material that would otherwise just go into maybe a a framed wall and we're putting it into a CLT4 or wall system that may actually have gone to build something that wouldn't have been wood to begin with. So that's all really good for um, markets across the board. And then it allows the markets to support the log prices because we all know that log prices and lumber prices go up and down and people get hurt on every end of those things. Um, if we could have a a trend that's kind of flattened out a little bit, but moving upwards and people could count on things and they could, you know, put down payments on new equipment and they could, they know that they've got the work ahead of them to do it. That's what grows economies. And that's what really helps, especially our forest, um, industry economies in our rural communities.
1: We want to thank our sponsors, Pacific Forest Foundation and the Pacific Logging Congress, as well as Timberwest Magazine and Logging and Sawmilling Journal for making this podcast possible. And most importantly, we want to thank Russ for taking time out to be part of Talking Timber.